0: Hey, everybody. Episode three, The Durin Show. It's crazy to me that this this made it to episode three. I honestly, for a second, thought it was going to flounder after the first time we tried to record it. Record it but um, so far, so good. We're making this consistent. Thanks, coronavirus.
1: I think it helps that we haven't been booed off stage yet. <laughs>
0: well, that's only because we haven't released anything.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're
2: our only followers. Yeah. The one person who's listening has been very positive so far.
0: Thanks, Mitchell. You're welcome. <laughs> Got to keep those mics up. Uh, okay, so we have a, a shorter shorter lineup tonight in quantity, but I think we're going to have a lot of content to talk about. Um, we were chatting a little bit off offline, and, disagreements abound, which always means there's going to be a lot of good discussion, lively discussion. So I'm excited to jump right into this. So without further ado, let's get into our army review. So feature tonight, this is going to be a little different. Last time we had the new model, Helm Hammerhand, kind of a unique take on the Rohan list. This is going to be a more tried and true, uh, one of the OG models in the Lord of the Rings lineup, I think, Gilglad it's going to be Gilglad and his Rivendell compadres. Uh, this this model has been one of my favorites for a long time. I have a couple ideas on what that looks like. But there I think there are a lot of obvious challenges. Um, he comes he's a he's a beast of a model. Rivendell is a beast of a list, but Gilgalad brings a lot of restrictions with him. A lot of restrictions he got FAQ, a lot of restrictions that are embedded in his actual profile. So what I've done is I tried to come up with what I think would be an ideal combination. Uh, so I'll walk through that quickly. But what I'm excited to see is kind of what Mitchell and Matt, what you guys came up with as a list breaker, why this list would struggle, um, and maybe maybe why it shines in certain certain arenas. So without further ado, let's get through uh, profile review of Gilglad. I'm sure everybody's familiar with this but I'll just do a, a quick high level and then Matt Mitch you you point a highlight to something that you think I glossed over too quickly so um, the model himself he is a hero of legend he is the first profile on the Rivendell list he is 170 points base but you can take him with a shield and a horse so most of the time you're going to see him at 185 hero of legend he has got the infamous fight nine. Strength four, pretty typical. Defense seven, but with the shield, he's defense eight. Three attacks, three wounds. That's the amazing part. Courage seven, pretty typical Lord of the West. And then he's got the three might, three will, one fate. Gilglad comes with the following ability, similar to like Durin or uh, Celeborn. He's got the ability to take an elite guard with him. He can take... they call them they call them the king's guard king's guard there it is yep um yeah yeah there it is sorry for one extra point uh you can take a rivendell high elf warrior and upgrade them to a fight six model for one extra point but they have to be within his warband um the wear gear is pretty ridiculous he's got uh the shield, obviously, I'm in all my list. I take him with a shield and a horse, so that'll be uh, basic. He's got his heavy armor, and he's got, ah, uh, guys, you're gonna laugh at me when I try to pronounce this. Eglos, Eglos, Egloss, Yeah, that's what I've always said, but it could be wrong. Okay, know. it's it's that beautiful spear he comes with. Uh, it's a uh, basically a master Forge plus one to wound spear. So Gilgalad comes with a ton of special rules. I'll go through them quickly because I think they're pretty well known but uh the first one being terror all of the elf lords have terror he's a woodland he's got the woodland creature special rule he has got the lord of the west special rule which is the one free re-roll on the dual roll, one free reroll on uh, any wounding roll, and he's got blood and glory which is unique to i think he's one of the only elves correct me if i'm wrong guys he's one of the only elves with this
1: yeah i think he's the only good model with it
0: uh, yeah, that's awesome and then lastly, he's got high King of the elves. His standfast is 12 rather than six inches. And he uh, impacts friendly heroes as well as warriors. So all around just a beast. He's got all of the heroic actions, heroic strike, strength, defense, challenge, and resolve. Um, he's a, he, he's a beast of a model, but as we, I'm sure we'll talk about shortly, there are a couple obvious weaknesses that he he does succumb to. So, that's the model. What I want to do really quick is jump into the the list I put to kind of support him, come around him. My vision was I want to take this list, this Rivendell list featuring Gilgalad, which is not super common. And so the supporting cast is my idea of what, what supports him the best or what kind of partners with his strengths and weaknesses the best. So I'll run through that really quickly. Um, This is an 800-point list. I built two variants because I want to get your guys' take. The the lists are almost identical except for one feature, Um, but we'll get there when I I cover that part. So 800 points, uh, version one, is going to be 34 model count, so very, very low on the model count list for a typical 800-point list. It's going to feature three warbands. The first is Gilgalad on horse with shield, fully kitted. The second warband is going to be led by Glorfindel with his uh, armor of Gondolin and his Asphaloth horse. And the third warband, everybody guessed it, it's going to be Kirdan. Um, pretty obvious there. And then the warrior composition in this first version, gil going to be taking six Kingsguard with spear and shield. And then he's going to be taking three high elf warriors with shield and spear. So that's a total of nine warriors with spear and shield. And then Gilgalad is going to take a high elf banner uh, in his warband as well with a shield. So that's going to be 13 warriors with Gilgalad. Lorfendil is going to take six high elf warriors with shield, six high elf warriors with spear. So that's the more traditional uh, kind of sword and board block. And then Glorfindel is also going to take three high elf warriors with bows. Now he's a hero of valor, so he can't take that 15 warriors. So uh, he actually has the largest warband in this list. And then Kyridan, based on the FAQ, he's the minor hero, so he can only take six with him. He's going to take three high elf warriors with bows, and then he's going to take three high elf warriors with spear and shield. And that comes out to exactly 800 points. So what I would like to do is kind of walk you through what I think the goal of this list is. And then let's maybe quickly talk about the second variant and then let's get you Mitchell and Matt, let's get your take on what you think the downfall because offline you, you guys had a lot of, a lot of comments on what you thought the flaws on this build were. So, um, high level, the, the weakness I see off the top, is just having that superhero which has no counter to magic beyond the three will that he's given now the good thing about the elves you don't need to really rely or or take into consideration the fact that you're gonna need a will late game for a courage test or some other uh, stand fast just because of that courage seven so really you have only three will to resist a sorcerer or a magic caster that has the immobilize, the consistent immobilize, or maybe more specifically a barrel white that has five will to try and transfix you. Where I've seen Gilglad fall really hard on the space is where he runs into those lists. He fails that. He he burns a lot of dice. Maybe it's less. Let's say it's an Angmar Rivendell matchup. He burns a lot of will on that initial resist test against the uh, um, uh, the paralyzed and misses it, and then for the rest of the game is susceptible to uh, transfix, immobilize, command, compel. There's so many different spells. If you have zero will to resist, you're going to be hung up. And he is 185 points with his, his full war gear. He is a, a force to be reckoned with, but if he sits there every single turn doing nothing, it's going to be a rough day. So I brought Glorfindel, with him specifically with the idea that you have one hero that's really expensive, that is very susceptible to magic, partnered with somebody that has the fortified spirit special rule. Now, Glorfindel, I'm not going to go into his profile, but he has the fortified spirit rule, which gives him two free dice for any resist test that he has to make unlimited in addition to his three will on top of all that. So he is in my mind, the epitome of what an anti-magic hero would look like. He doesn't have the killing power. He doesn't have the punching power. But he has fight seven, which is higher than almost every single hero in the game, barring, you know, a Bulg, Azog, etc. So you're going to, more likely than not, you're going to be in a situation where your opponent has to strike up to equal your fighting power. That was one of my key points, uh, bringing Glorfindel. And then Curedan, everybody hates on him. He is a very contested uh, hero with lots of opinions. Lots of people think he's broken. He's been FAQ'd specifically, which I believe is pretty rare for a model to be individually called out. But he still has the ability, even though he can only bring six warriors now, he has the ability to cause the terror bubble, which... Really helps in the situations where you're allowed to, when you're when you're able to bunch up, causing terror can really compensate for a lower model count because you're mitigating the fact that opponents may not be able to charge you consistently or effectively. And then obviously the enchanted blades, he can throw that at Glorfindel to increase the punching power and the potency. So in a perfect world, Gilglads off on his own doing his thing. He's immune to almost anything in the game barring magic. And you have Glorfindel somewhere in the background with Fleetfoot, which we'll maybe talk about that in a second. The 12-inch range, the threat, three might, fight seven, and Curedan being able to throw his free Enchanted Blades towards Glorfindel to help him secure that kill. Um, and then a, a decent amount of shooting. I think there's set, no six bows in this list. Uh, Blinding Light comes with Curedan if you need it. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the overall list. It really is dependent on—oh, and then, I'm sorry, the King's Guard, the fight six. So you, you have a select amount of troops able to force heroes, maybe uh, lower tier armies like uh, Easterlings or uh, Minas Tirith or Harad, where your typical heroes fight five. A warrior is causing that hero to have to strike up through a, just a spear support or direct confrontation. So that's the build. The only variation of that is I built two. One was what I just walked through. The other version of this subbed out that high elf banner for two more warriors. So really the first list had 34 warriors. The second list had 36 warriors. Um, I'm curious to see what you guys think. If you'd be more terrified of one or the other, obviously a few scenarios come with victory points to the banner but in the first list you only have 33 warriors who are capable 33 models that are capable of combat the second list all 36 are capable and you get an extra bow so um yeah i think i'll stop there and and we'll jump into kind of thoughts first impressions and then a detailed analysis of why you guys don't think this is this is going to work at 800 points so mitchell what are your what are your first thoughts on that
1: Uh, I like the list. I love Gilglad. I love Kingsguard. I love Glorfindel. But honestly, my issue with this list is Glorfindel. I think he is the reason why it will fail. Um, I've run Glorfindel many times. I absolutely love him. Uh, There's a few things I've learned with him as I've played him. Number one, absolutely, insanely good against Magic. I took him in a two-day tournament uh, a few months ago. Resisted every single spell. Went up against like three or four spellcasters. Uh, resisted every single spell that was thrown at him. It was amazing. Problem I had with him is if he hits defense seven or anything, he will struggle. He will not. So a lot of captains are that way. So you basically are committing him to killing troops. And sometimes he'll get hung up on troops. Not always, but sometimes. And I think where this list struggles is he is your second best hero. So if I'm an opponent... And I'm facing Gilglad on one side, who has only three will. And he will chop through all my heroes and warriors and be absolutely insane, go berserk. And then I have Glorfindel on the other side, who can get hung up by warriors, but also will shrug off every spell. I'm going to throw my Immobilize or Transfix on Gilglad every time, completely wipe him out of the game, and just focus all my efforts on Glorfindel, knowing that he, yes, he's Fight 7, yes, he's the Lord of the West, But he only has a strength four, hand and a half weapon, and nothing to really boost that. Insanely good against monsters, uh, but he just gets hung up. That's just what I found. The more I played him, that's just what I found. He just struggles sometimes, especially against defense seven. Uh, What I would do differently with this list, I'd go for the other Lord of the West. I don't know why you're not taking Elrond instead. What you get with Elrond for 20 points more is you are getting another hero legend i would make him my leader who is a three wound and three fate with the ring so he's a lot more resistant to dying plus he brings his own spells he can throw some renews onto gilglad and then you have the threat of wrath of Brunin. so now if i'm an opponent and i have two heroes of legends charging at me if i immobilize gilglad elrond will just run down and drop my entire shield wall or my entire front line and then he will hack through some guys. If I immobilize Elrond, then Gilglad will take over. You know what I mean? Like, there's not the same <laughs> hang-up that Laura Fendel struggles with. Gil- uh, Elrond does get some plus ones against Spirits. He has other spells, like I was talking about. He has the Foresight points to make sure you get initiative. Priority,
0: priority yeah, rolls. Yeah,
1: yeah, he's just got so many things that come with him for just another 20 points. I mean, just the Wrath of Bruinins is a threat right there that's going to make everybody focus. And on top of that, what I think the best thing that gives him that is that you make him your leader now, and now you don't care if Gilglad charges and dies you can be risky as whatever you want with him and make him just go after hero after hero getting those might points back and just being an absolute threat so i know that i just I'm, I, I just think elrond does a lot better i know i just bashed Glorfindel in a way saying that he gets hung up i think Glorfindel absolutely shines when he's your leader because you're shrugging off those spells that make you paralyzed. Oh, really? You're fight seven. You're, you're uh, completely immune to monsters, things that take you down like the fell beasts and stuff like that. I think Glorifendel really shines when he's your leader. I don't think he'll shine when he's your second best guy. I think you need right. someone up, up on par with Gilglad, like an Elrond, who can share the load and offer just as much of a threat to a spellcaster.
0: No, oh, that's, a, that's a lot of good insight. I have a couple comments, but I'm going to wait until Matt, you have a chance to to share your thoughts as well.
2: All right, so my initial thoughts on um, your army as built. What I see, I'm hoping I have a ton of strike, and I'm hoping that my heroes are at least five, six or more, just to account for the odds of being able to hope to get above Gilgalad strike level and at least force of fifty-fifty, um, the warrior dynamic of the Kingsguard going up to fight six, and then your your base troops being fight five, the archery. Um, this built, you're still getting your army. Belt, so depending on the scenario, there's a, a big chance that that you're going to be hurt by archery as you're as you're charging. Belt. So when I see this on the table, I sure hope I have a lot of striking heroes. I have some quick movement, and I am just praying there's a lot of terrain that keeps your army separated so that you can't shoot me to pieces, and then when we engage, I can split your grouping up.
0: Yeah, Super I think
1: that's the hardest thing. I think thoughts. that's I think that's good insight. I think the hardest thing is about keeping everything close to Curedan and when you get a scenario that forces everything to split up like mm-hmm. a domination like a com- command the battlefield or something like that i think that's where it will really struggle
2: agreed if if you're playing uh what is the capture the hill one hold ground so yeah scary yes very very because very everybody's grouped in the middle
0: so i want to share now
2: i'll save later i i think there's a I think there's something you must always do when you're running a Glad Rivendell list that you didn't do here. So I'm interested in that. We'll pick up oh, that program. Sure.
0: No, let's let's jump right into that. What do you what do you think I should didn't include?
2: So my personal opinion is anytime you run Rivendell, you've got multiple options, but if you decide lad army. I think you have to commit to losing your army bonus and say you're going to be combat heroes you're not going to be archery heavy any archers you bring you put spears on them so they can be primary spear supports and just be opportunistic archers and you bring Lindir to get the resistant to magic on Gilgalad everybody around him
1: you can't take Lindir with Gilgalad unfortunately
2: you, you can. You can. You just lose the army bonus. You lose the army bonus oh, and become oh, okay. impossible allies. With oh, enemies.
1: yeah. Okay.
2: Yep, yeah. you right. Same as... Yeah, okay. you you absolutely can. You just lose the... That's why I said you, you forget about the archery, and you put spears on your archers, making sure they're just backline support, ready for opportunistic shots. Because I believe Rivendell's army bonus is all about archery bonus. So.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not that good. Yeah, I think it, on paper, it's one of the coolest army bonuses in the game and then you actually see it play out in scenarios and it's one of the most worthless army bonuses in the game because it requires you to not move and if you are for multiple turns not moving a third of your army you are going to have a huge disadvantage on board control and you're going to be playing catch up unless you draw the most lucky scenario of all time and get to sit on an objective you need from turn one so I agree with you, Matt. The army bonus is almost worthless. Almost.
2: And I think my comments are only if you're running
0: a pure Rivendell list with Gil as the leader. So, Mitchell, I want to I start with a couple of things you said first. So this is, I think, the really cool part where theory and personal experience clash. And I want to hear what you think. So you bait... I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and summarize your comments by Elrond is a better option than Glorfindel. Substitute two warriors and upgrade Glorfindel to Elrond. You'll get more for his points. To complement Gilglad. To complement Gilglad. Right. So I've actually played that combination only one or two times, and I've actually played against it a couple times. It gets weird and what i mean by that is the two warrior count in this army list seems like five warrior count it's weird i don't i, I can't explain it but when you're playing that low model count and you're playing against a typical let's say you're playing against a, a 800 point list with 45 models having two additional models is significant to hold the line to charge to stall so two models in itself is a lot in my opinion. The other thing Elrond has yes he has the four side of the Eldor which can help you potentially gain priority because one of the downfalls of this list at 800 points only have seven might three with Gilgalad three with Corfindel one with Cirdan and and functionally maybe only six because Cirdan's probably going to use a might for his spells that is a huge disadvantage because I think any of us if we were to build a typical list we're probably having 8, 9, 10 might in an 800 point list. So you're going to be at a might disadvantage for the entire game. This is where I think Elrond struggles. Elrond at fight 6, even though he's got the the repertoire of spells, the renew doesn't I I've, I've honestly never seen that actually popped in the game. of Brunin is amazing. But at fight 6, if Elrond doesn't have priority, all of those special rules are almost gone. And him as your leader, um, yeah, that that is a good that is a good option because he's got three fate instead of one, and he's got the ability to re-roll his fate rolls in case he get that that really sucky one triple ones. Um, it, it, I I've just seen it more than twice. Elrond runs into trouble because Elrond doesn't get priority, and then Elrond is in the same boat. having to strike up to try and survive and then all of his might gets burned on striking and he doesn't get to kill so comparing Elrond versus Glorifendel really quickly on this front they both have strength four and assuming you're not fighting the spirits which to be honest there's not that many spirit armies out there um you're really going to be in the same struggle as Glorifendel of needing that six to wound any decent d7 model So that's going to be Dwarves. Any Dwarf army, you're going to really struggle. Any Mm -hmm. hero-heavy army, like Gondor, um, like Easterlings. Like I'm trying to just think of traditional D7. You're going to struggle. You're not going to get that consistent kill. You're not going to be able to rely on the fact that you can set up a hero combat. But when I look at the two together and when I've seen them played and when I played them myself, the difference is... Glorfindel has to spend less might per turn to survive. Elrond has to, against those types of odds, when he's not facing Goblin Town, when he's not facing Angmar, Elrond has to spend might to survive. Elrond has to spend might to do things. The other thing I will yeah. say really quickly is, sorry, let me interrupt you, really quickly. Glorfindel being fight seven, Elrond being fight six, the way I play these two heroes is I use the Elven Blade as a two-handed weapon quite often because they lack that killing power. So Kiridan is going to be the bodyguard to basically the second hero. So Kierdan is always going to have enchanted blades helping them out with along with the banner. So the banner gives them two rerolls, which really gives them the flexibility to use that two-handed weapon in a situation where they need to. Um, get that hero combat off. So let me walk you through that. So the hero charges in, calls a hero combat. Kierdan is going to try and cast enchanted blades on the hero, and the banner is going to be within range. So you're rolling three or four dice with a superior fight value. and you have the Lord of the west reroll for the duel plus the banner reroll for the duel. That is a ton of rerolls. And in my experience, when you stack that together, it usually works out. I
1: I would agree with you normally. Uh, just saying uh, Elrond has the same benefits, just the fight value difference. I think Elrond just has a few more tricks up his sleeves with the the foresight of the Eldar with the uh, spells. And like I said, I love Glorfindel. I, I really do. It's just uh, when I played him, he will, you have that fight seven, you have the double re-roll with the banner and then the Lord of the West. You have the Lord of the West with just a re-roll. I've run also the same thing with, uh, with Celeborn and he throws enchanted blades on himself, same thing, mm-hmm. and they just stop. And then it's really frustrating when he gets hung up on two warriors for, you know, a turn. And then the next turn he gets hung up again. And then maybe he hacks through it and then he gets hung up again, all because you're, you're trying to get that extra killing power and they're just rolling the sixes and you're not.
0: Totally, totally hear that. So let's let's be specific. So, what armies? So when I'm thinking of armies that would screw Elrond or screw Glorifendel, I'm thinking Dwarves, a good versus good. I'm thinking of any army that runs a base D seven. There's not a lot of them. Those armies. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Those armies don't have. They're all dwarves. Well, no, Minas Tirith and Easterlings could also.
1: B7. Easterlings can't, but uh, the, the Don't
0: the, Easterlings have the shield
1: wall? Only on horse, which will you'll never see in combat.
0: Oh okay. Yeah okay. So uh, maybe just Minas
1: Tirith. But the 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 games that I saw Glorfind, I know it must it might have been dice. It's just the games I saw him struggle was also D5 D6. It's really frustrating to see him get hung up. You might win oh, the really? fights. You should, yeah, he'll win fights. It'll be fine. It's just going to kill. Uh, you might try to like kill knock off two guys and then you only knock off one maybe you'll knock Set off it. two you know you might, you might slingshot and like I said it wasn't completely horrible he was great and he was my leader too so like I said my hero my leader never died it was amazing my leader was never spell casted my leader never died he was a solid never scared of monsters i think he's great i just think to compliment Gilglad when you're opposing two spell uh, like a spellcaster which is Gilglad's main weakness why mm-hmm. would you not just continually transfix Gilglad anyways and just deal with Glorfindel one-on-one.
2: So if I'm hearing Mitchell's concern correctly with Glorfindel being the second guy in charge, it's primarily around what happens when he's facing defense and needs to roll a six. So let's just play the numbers game and let's look at this. If if Glorfindel is not on the charge, has three attacks based, and I'm going to run through a bunch of this um, again, Just like last episode, thanks to the guys at Drawn Combat for doing this. I I love this chart. But So three attacks, odds of rolling a six, 42.1. Four attacks, if he's on the charge, goes up to 51.8. If he only needs a five, he's got a 70.4% chance of doing it with three attacks. If he's on the charge, it goes up to 80.2. And then I think uh, Lord of the West, consider that if you take that up and you, you give him his other dice roll... Needing a six, if you go to five total dice, 59.8. Needing a five, 86.8. And then let's just for fun say he's got a spear support behind him somehow, or another person in the combat if he's on a horse. Six attacks, he's got a 66.5% chance of rolling a six.
1: I think I, I see the odds of Glorfendel doing good. I'm just my I think my counter argument was that Elrond would do just as good, offer a little more variety, offer a solution to you know being more resilient as a leader kill, and also give a viable target for another spellcaster rather than just always being targeted by Gilglad
0: or for... taking the heat off Gilgalad, basically right right. More. So I, than agree. Wood.
2: I agree with you, Mitch. I take Gil- Gil- Gilglad uh, Elrond. And then sub out Kiridan for Lindir, and then there's your army.
0: Uh, that's this is fascinating because when I was so let's stop. Obviously, the list you guys just proposed is a is a valid list. It's been tried and true. I think a, a few people, maybe not with Gilgalad, but a lot of people have done the the Lindir Elrond combination uh, just because it's it's really powerful. I see a break on the old scenarios, and even more so with the new scenarios, I think it's this weird reality where theory hits the actual game table and it doesn't work out like you think it's supposed to. So for instance, I've seen this list get blown up several times with Maelstrom deployment. You have low might, so you don't have a lot of might to spend already, and then you get super unlucky with the rolls and you're either forced to split your army or forced to spend a lot of your might just to keep your army together so you're at right off the bat you're at a huge disadvantage when i compare no but so- there just- you use elrond's
2: foresight points to lose priority on the, the maelstrom
1: very good point
0: so uh, that's a really good comment so this is this is something where i had a strong belief until i was shown the other side and i think i'm more in the in the middle so there are what what's the scenario guys help me out what's the scenario where uh if you win priority you have to deploy your entire army maelstrom before your opponent right is that domination?
2: well is that? No, there's, no that's a there's now a capture four of old there's four of them now so it's uh uh, con- maelstroms no capture and control is maelstrom oh. uh capture my new Cap not, capture, not and control. capture and control i'm thinking of the one in the middle hold ground is hold, hold ground. okay that's the hold one. Ground. my bad so i'm opening up the new book that shows you all the maelstrom i believe it's ornaments.
1: heirlooms of ages past hold ground and that would be uh command the battlefield
0: that's the three cool one so so let's just let's take hold the ground hold ground as the example here When deploying, you have to deploy first. It's obviously unfortunate to win priority because you have to basically play your cards before your opponent. But if you're willing or have an army that's willing to spend might, you actually put your opponent in a predicament because if you have tactical superiority in in your deployment as the first player and your opponent rolls second and is forced with the predicament of having you put their warbands in a really bad spot, you're almost forcing your opponent to spend the same amount of might or more, obviously assuming they don't just roll sixes the entire time. It's, I, I always thought it was an auto-lose. I thought it, I thought if you have two players with similar build lists, you know, really good quality, solid, solid skill level, the person that won priority was always gonna lose because it was such a disadvantage. But the last three times I've played those scenarios after talking to somebody that just encouraged me to be really aggressive. If you win priority, be the one to burn might to make sure you have perfect positioning on the board. It actually turned out to be, I'm three and zero after going first on those deployments, which is an anomaly to me because it was completely different than what I thought. So the idea of having to go first, not so scary to me anymore. What do you guys
2: think? Agree with that if you've got might to burn, um, and maybe this Swiss does because Gilgalad's fight nine. He's not going to be needing a lot of strikes, and I honestly am not too scared if he loses a roll off unless it's against some burly two-handed uh, monster or hero. Um, so he doesn't even mind not calling a strike and possibly losing in combat. Uh, no, I think that's I think that's valid. Although I just I, I go back to you can pick and choose how you want to play that depending on your opponent if you've got Elrond, which is a huge idea with his foresight points, assuming you don't roll a one on his foresight.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I still think I still think the advantage goes to the person who loses priority for sure because the, the stress is off of you. It's all on your opponent. Do they have enough might? Are they willing to be aggressive and burn it and rely on your dice rolling in the end?
0: Yeah, that, that's a fair point, Mitchell. All right, so it sounds like... We've got a lot of feedback on this list, uh, a lot of opinions. I'm excited to be able to actually try to play, I'll obviously hopefully be able to play both of these variants and maybe come back and do a quick uh, quick update on how they went. One, putting Elrond in to see if the, the added functionality plays out and is worth that you know, extra 20 points. And the other just, if Glorfindel completely uh, disappears in the list or actually, can command enough of a presence to to make a difference. But um, what do we say? Let's, let's go ahead and move on to our next segment. Let's do it. All right, for this one, this is gonna be our mega monster review. This is a new segment for us, but uh, after having some conversations offline, the idea of focusing some time to talk about the what ifs, specifically, what if you run against that ultra terrifying, super high costed model, uh, that you've only ever played maybe once and you're just worried the model is going to wreck your list. Case in point, what happens if the bell rock drops down on the table across from you? Uh, number one, kind of, what are your thoughts? Are you super, super scared, super cocky? I know there's actually a pretty wide, wide contingent of what people think about this model, but, um, putting all that theory away. Mitchell, you actually run a lot of Moria and a lot of Moria with the Belrog. So wanted to get your take on on the model, some of the lists you bring, and then maybe uh, Matt and I can talk about some what-ifs or maybe even compare it back to this elven army that we've talked about.
1: Yeah, I, I like Moria a lot. I like uh, Moria without the Belrog a lot of times, but uh, the Belrog is a lot of fun to drop on the table. And uh, I've had a lot of success with it, as Marcus knows. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, so, so walk us through. I mean, everybody In the, the audience,
2: you might have caught that there was a subtle jab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's,
0: let's just say uh, Marcus was running
1: uh, Rivendell, actually. With uh, You're running the Twins and a rest store, right?
0: Yeah, okay. Let me just speed this up. Basically, in two <laughs> turns, all my heroes died. So, okay. <laughs> now that story's over. Um, so... <laughs> Greatest Belrog familiar. moment ever. <laughs> I know, it was pretty epic. Uh, so I think everybody's pretty familiar with the overall profile. So I don't, yeah. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time looking over that. But uh, Mitchell, you said you had put together like a, a mock list that you've actually run a few times. So we'd be curious to see kind of what you take as a supporting cast to to help um, help the Belrog. and then yeah, let's just go see whether see where that takes us.
1: Yeah, I do uh, run the Belrog a little bit different, I think, than whatever I've seen other people run. Uh, and I think whatever people run with it, they have their reasoning for it, and I think it'll work. Uh, I run this for specific reasons that I'll explain once I go through the list. But basically, I have uh, 800 points, I have the Belrog, and he's leading 16 warriors. He's got 8 warriors, eight goblin warriors with shield, 8 goblin warriors with spears. Pretty basic right there. Uh, Before,
0: that's just... Can I interrupt you really quick? Yeah, I think it would be helpful if you gave a, gave us give us the high level of what the list looks like, like model count. You already did point limits. How many heroes or monsters are you running? And then let's jump into the details so we can see what the individual warbands look like.
1: Okay, so it's a forty one model army at eight hundred points. I have uh, three heroes. Uh, I have the Belrog. I have Groblog, and then I have a Captain Shield. Uh, it's got three monsters, including the Belrog. So uh, the Belrog's running 16 goblin warriors, split eight and eight with shield and then spear. Uh, Groblog's leading 11 warriors, and he's got in his warband five Moria goblin warriors with shield, five Moria goblin warriors with spear, and then one dweller in the dark. And then I have a captain with shield, and he has got uh, five Moria goblins with shield, Four Moria Goblins with spear. I don't know why I did that. I would probably switch that around. But uh, And then I have a Dweller in the Dark and then a Bat Swarm. So, the, all in all, this army has a Belrog, two Dwellers in the Dark, a Bat Swarm, and then filled in with Moria Goblin Warriors. Five points of might between Groblog and the Captain. The Captain gives you March to be able to get somewhere, and Groblog gives you uh, the three might, plus sometimes the fight value, which doesn't always come into play. but... He's got strike. He's got
0: strike. Yeah, yeah,
1: he's got strike and defense. I think defense is honestly the best one about him because uh, stuff like assassination or or uh, fog of war, he's he's really durable. So,
0: two dwellers in the dark. I think you're one of the few people I've ever seen run the dwellers.
1: Yeah, I run the dwellers. I I play them a lot. I played cave trolls, which are obviously really really good, but for me, dwellers are just better. Uh, They're harder because they have the bigger base size. So it's harder to get them into places that you want them to get to. But the 8-inch move uh, is amazing. They heal up. They're fight 7, so automatically they threaten any hero on the board. Uh, combine that with a bat swarm. Hold uh,
0: on, hold on. Every hero except Glorifendel.
1: Okay, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless Glorifendel has a bat swarm in with him. Anyways, uh, to so the Dwellers, to me, the best thing about them, though, is Courage 7 and Resistant to Magic. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've run a cave troll and had them either compelled away or sentineled away, or Spectre, whatever you want to call, uh, or they do just enough to break my army really fast, and then the cave trolls run away. So to me, to have the Courage 7 and resistant to magic on your monsters that are supposed to help out the Balrog as much as possible is just been so nice and then uh they usually hit the edges because they have the eight inch move they're fast enough to wrap around the edges while the balrog kind of sits back he i don't necessarily charge the balrog in because if the balrog's fighting warriors he's not really doing much he's there to try to triple your army take out the heroes take out whatever is big in your army so if you can sit him back for a little bit and lash a little bit pull that hero that you the leader into combat with him and then maybe start chopping through some
0: warriors yeah, normally I give you a lot of grief for taking dwellers over cave trolls. We've had we've had this argument, which is better, quite a few times. But in this in this specific list, I like your reasoning for taking them specifically being you don't want your high costed monsters running away or not being able to make the courage uh, to to successfully charge somebody.
1: Yeah, or it's so easy because nobody's going to really target the Belrog with magic. Uh, with the ten will and resistant to magic. So if you have a cave troll, it's really easy. Oh yeah, I'm gonna make sure that, that cave them. troll doesn't d- that cave is not gonna do anything this turn. So if you have that resistant to magic or that courage seven, it goes well against any wizard or any sentinel.
0: And I, I'm I'm ignorant. I've played against bats so many times, but you'll have to help clarify this. Rounds down. Is it does it round down after Rest strikes? Down. That's the only uh, one that rounds down.
1: It rounds down after your total fight value. So no matter what, the highest fight value you can have is 5.
0: Okay, so then what I was going to say doesn't matter. Because I was going to try and compare what happens if you had a Dweller versus a Cave Troll in a combat with a, a bat. But both would automatically win no matter what. Because yes. if you struck up to 10, you could never beat those. Yes. You guys check me, but I believe the bat is the only one that rounds down.
2: Everything else rounds up. Yeah. Um, I believe I, right. I, I I
1: can't remember if the ring does as well. I, I'd have to look it up, but the ring might as well. It rounds up. It does. Okay. Okay.
2: They, yeah, I remember they, the, what they did in the FAQ is they said if it doesn't specifically mention rounding down, then assume it rounds up, and that's okay. why the bat swarm in my in, in my interpretation is the only one that goes down. Okay. Yeah, yeah they're nice.
1: they're incredibly awesome. I've I've assassinated Gilgalad a few times with just with them and a and neither dweller or a cave troll. Actually, I've done it with just goblins and a bat swarm.
0: Well, in the uh, the other big comparison between those two monsters we were just talking about, the cave troll and the dwellers, uh, warrior chomping, I've seen the dwellers stall out a lot of times trying to cut through two or three warriors at a time, which is usually pretty easy for a cave troll. But you still have access if you do get up against a hero; you still have access to rending. So because you're a monster, so even with the lower strength, you can still pack a punch, and you're going to be hero threatening
1: yeah. everybody.
0: That's but again, like you said, with that fight seven, the fight
1: sevens are really good, and uh, it it they are uh, fragile with the defense five, but more often than not, they don't get one punched. Like it's hard to actually put three wounds onto them unless they get trapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're putting two wounds on, then they're going to go off and recover, and bring their two wounds back because they can heal themselves, and then now you're frustrating your opponent because he thought those things were going to go away really fast, and they keep lingering around and hurling. Uh, cause even at strength five, hurling can do some damage to your lines with the eight inch move and getting around.
0: Yeah. Well, and,
2: you know, I run ogres and the dwellers are pretty similar to the ogres, except a little higher fight and they can heal. I think their defense is both five. So the fact that you can go recover after you get a couple of wounds on you is just, that's, that's
0: pretty good. I feel like there was a, maybe it was just in our circles, Rachel, but I feel like there's always been a stigma about uh, around low defense monsters or heroes. And after finally playing a lot of these factions, Golivar, seeing the Dwellers play, some of the Uruk Scouts, you start to realize that there are quite a few tactics that actually allow you for, to protect those people. So, I mean, barring just the horrible role that no, no defense would save you from, like the quadruple sixes all at once. Um, Defense 5 really isn't that big a deal, as long as you are careful.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Just don't get yourself into a bad situation with them. Like uh, I think that's the problem I see a lot of people who play the Balrog is they just throw him in, thinking that he's going to just go through everything, and then they... You know, I've had a, a serious frustrations when the Balrog doesn't roll a six and all of a sudden he's getting stalled on a couple of warriors. It's really, really frustrating. So it's just important to be smart about what your monsters are supposed to do. I still think cave trolls are awesome and they have their, their purpose. I think the smaller base size is what really sets them apart is being able to fit in some tight spaces with a fight six, strength six monster is really frustrating. But uh, you just got to know your monster and know how to play them and what's their strength, what's their weaknesses, what's going to get them into trouble.
0: So the the main focus of this segment, now that we've kind of heard your composition of what you would take with the Belrog, is going to be really dissecting, Mitchell, your play strategy, which I think you hinted to a couple times, uh, and then offer up some general suggestions for how to counter this monster. Because speaking from personal experience, I think I've just built some killer lists. You drop them on a table and the one thing you didn't craft to is what happens if you have somebody that honestly really can't die in a in a tournament game with the time, yeah. time that that's provided what happens if you have some what happens if you're doing hold the ground against the belrog like what if what if this completely outlier scenario actually happens to you
1: so yeah contest of champions versus the belrog
0: <laughs> yeah exactly like what what do you do
2: um, which i did play the belrog and hold ground in a tournament and one which is i still worked out for you i i still don't know how that worked (laughs) i'm gonna hold on
0: to that forever though because that will never happen so yeah mitch will give us a give us a quick uh explanation for how you play him so you mentioned a few times that you don't just charge him in uh that you play a certain tactic can you elaborate a little bit on that
1: yeah actually uh It's so easy to tie the Belrog up, and yeah, he has the hero combats, which can get him out of situations, which is great, but usually that really pays off late game. Uh, If you put a goblin shield wall in front of him, and then you keep him back, just like maybe one to two turns before the lines actually clash, uh, or one turn of actually clashing, and you're just sniping for their hero, whatever they're trying to protect, it's usually something big and uh you're able to pull that into combat with you because he hits on a three plus uh so you're more likely going to hit him and you're going to drag him in because he's got pretty good elevation too so line of sight usually you don't have that many in the ways maybe one in the way uh and you're able to grab what you want to grab pull him in and because you have that goblin ring around it it's usually a trapped model versus a fight 10 strength 9 four attack belrog and uh You'll be able to one-punch something. And then you can clash him in and then start doing your hero combats and stuff like that. But the main thing with a Belrog, I think, is trying to get your points back. And you're not going to get your points back if you're chomping through even four warriors a turn. It's pretty hard to do.
0: So correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is you're going to avoid direct engagement with the Belrog until you have the opportunity to successfully snipe or lash a hero.
1: Yeah, that's my goal. If it doesn't work out, then i got to get him in and start doing something. But my goal, since you have that lash, it's just so nice because it basically forces them to play so differently. Like, uh, you're probably not going to see their uh, Elendils clashing in right off the bat because the Belrog's coming for you. Um, Even if you, like, tie up the enemy hero, if they clash in, you can still lash into combat. And then you have a 50-50 hit of what you want to hit or you're preventing that hero combat. It's just so nice you're either going to kill him or you're going to prevent him from doing something nasty.
0: That's really good. Any other, any other specifics just off the top of your head that you focus on when trying to run that big model?
1: Uh, giving him space is really, really important. So you got to like fan out the goblins a little bit. You're utilizing that fearless, but you still got to give him room. You got to give him might support. You got to be able to help him out. Uh, No banner really, really hurts. Uh, I thought about doing the goblin drum, but the problem with the goblin drum is it only affects the goblins, and when are you ever going to have a goblin and a belrog in the same combat at the same time
0: versus one model?
1: It doesn't happen very often, so there's really no banner support, which I think the belrog really, really needs. That's the hardest thing about him. But uh, the dwellers, I think, really, really help out because you can send the the belrog down the middle and kind of like pick a side that he wants to go after and then you have the dwellers to support the other side or split up and hit each one side um, and be able to hurl down the lines and down the center just cause havoc they're really really good against cavalry i went up against uh, a rohan list last time i played them and they just ripped them to shreds
0: so a couple observations being the unfortunate beneficiary or recipient of playing against the Belrog. Um, and then Matt, I want to hear kind of your thoughts. Uh, but Mitchell, so right off the bat, when I always hear you say, oh, I'm only bringing 41 models and most of them are goblins with the Belrog. The first thing that goes through my mind is like, oh, sweet, this is gonna be this is going to be pretty easy. Uh, I will have the numbers advantage and then I'll have enough models to keep feeding the Belrog uh, and basically stall or kite him the whole game. But playing you a few times, your comment about giving him space is is couldn't be, couldn't be more spot on. You have, I think, honestly, one of the few players that I've seen run the Belrog, have really figured out the fact that if you run a horde with him, it's more of a stumbling block and a like a lead blocker for your opponent. Uh, it's surprisingly easy to kite your heroes away from the Belrog if he's trying to run down a shield wall of like 12 or 13 goblins. Um so that's that's the first thing I always uh, realized that I was wrong about is the low model count, I think actually makes the bell rug a little bit better. Um, and with the and with the fearless bubble, you're never worried about breaking. You're never worried about uh, running away per se. So um, spot on there. The other thing I've seen you do a couple times, I don't know if this is intentional uh, or something that just kind of naturally happens. you have have run the bell rug off quite a few times to fight his own battles. Uh, so you basically you split your force, uh, especially if there's like a piece of terrain or if there's something to fight around, you're pretty quick to run the bellrog off to hold one side, and then everything else goes to the other side, which, even though there's no bellrog, you still have two dwellers, you have a lot of might support. I think you, you the couple times I played you, I'm thinking of one in, in particular. I think you ran the captain with the bellrog, and then Groblog stayed behind with the dwellers and all of the model count. Um, and that actually works out pretty well as, pretty well as also. And I, I haven't seen a lot of people be that willing to split the Belrog away from the main force because that just, you're basically baiting the opponent of you have to run your heroes this way uh, because the Belrog's going the other way. And then you have your bat and your dwellers to try and counter whatever came, came to them, so.
1: Yeah, and yeah, goblins die pretty fast, but they can die slow enough to allow that captain and that Belrog to march over to the other side once they take care of what they need to so it's all about how fast can you kill my goblins and dwellers before my bellrog catches back up to you um i i don't like doing that but if the board dictates that i have to do that 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 is my strategy you're absolutely right it's put the dwellers the bat swarm and then the horde of goblins on one side and then the bellrog with a few supporting goblins and a captain to the other side you're right
0: Matt, you said you had an army that you would be pretty pretty happy to throw up against this. Just something that you run pretty standard, uh, pretty universal against this superhero army. Yeah, I think,
2: uh, so specifically the variant that Mitchell is running. um, Mitchell, you're not running a Black Shield Shaman, right?
1: no and i love them i just don't own one so if i own one i might try to fit one in uh but as of right now i don't own one and i'm happy running the captain instead to get that march
2: okay yeah i mean honestly i'll talk about the army that i like to run as a counter but you know i think that kind of the theme is What do you do regardless of what army you're running when you see the Balrog get plopped down on the table? And uh, besides sweating profusely, stressing out, and vowing to quit the game every time I see that I'm having to play against a Balrog, uh, the next thing to do is to figure out how to ensure that you're isolating the Balrog from from what it wants to do, and that's take out your big pointed heroes, hold an objective, and just break you. Um, So it's all about... You know, Mitchell talked about how he ensures that the Balrog does not get trapped by his own line, doesn't dive into combat. It's about forcing that to happen. So I think the absolute ideal counter list to a Balrog is an army that can put out low-cost warriors that have fairly high courage that you can just roadblock. And I'm not just talking about roadblocking charges of the Balrog, but also roadblocking the Fiery Lash, which I think turns out to be, you know, a lot of people really start playing a game and they'll they'll play defensive mode, they'll create a line, and at some point you wind up forgetting about the Fiery Lash and it pulls your hero across the line into it and then the game's over. So ensuring that you're blocking it from charging, as well as making sure there's always an in the way for that throwing weapon, um, whenever it's within, uh, what is it, I think it's an 8-inch range.
0: So, so 12. It's, like, ridiculous.
1: It's it's eight, but it's still ridiculous. It gives the Balrog a 14-inch range.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's the other thing, too, and I've fallen victim to this. You, you're you thinking about the eight-inch on the weapon, and so if you're moving first, you do your due diligence, and then you're like, oh, thanks. I forgot about the fact that it got to move before it did that. So, <laughs> um, I, I won't admit to having done that, but oh, well. Um, so anyways, the list... Actually, I'll just talk about the list that I played in the tournament. So um, when I played the Balrog, and, and this tournament, I played the Balrog three different times. Um, it was crazy how many people were running Moria. But uh, I had as Az- no, excuse me, two different times. It was a different tournament for the third time. But I was running uh, Azog's Legion, allied with Azog's Hunters. And so this tournament was 700 points. So I had uh, Azog, he was leading two ogres and an assortment of Gundabad orcs. And then I had another warband that had Yasnig with some hunter orcs, uh, some cell wargs. Uh, He was all kitted out. And then the third warband was Goblin Mercenaries. Um, So the first time I played the Balrog, it was on domination. And instead of using the ambush rule... I deployed the mercenaries right in a spot where they were always between the Balrog and anything important. And in that game of domination, I sat on the objectives, the Balrog chewed through the 12 goblin mercenaries and the captain, and then everything else broke me and the game. And it actually wound up quartering me. But with the way I had Azog positioned, we passed courage test and kept on objectives. So basically in that game, I used the Balrog's offensive weaponry to my advantage He just completely dominated me. I lost that game for all intents and purposes, except when it was over, I was sitting on all the objectives. Um, So then the second variant was hold ground. I'll be honest, I got really lucky with some of the maelstrom of battle deployments. But in that case, the big key was the Balrog, I was able to split it off. So while the Balrog was chewing through low point models every turn, I was able to take out a Dweller in the Dark, a Bat Swarm, Groblog, basically everything that scared me. And this entire time, the Balrog was killing one portion of my army on the north board edge and then started walking towards the middle objective. I'd killed most of his other army. Uh, So when it was all said and done, he had like 14 goblins and the Balrog sitting on the middle objective on hold ground. I still had... uh, one of my warbands was completely gone. Yasnig's was completely destroyed by the Balrog. Azog had taken out his Dweller and everything good. And then at the end of the game, I basically, I deployed my mercenary ambush on the objective. And uh, wound up charging Azog in for the very end to get leader points. So we both, I struck up to 10 and won the roll-off. But I think... That's that's neither here nor there. I got lucky, but I think the strategy on that is basically countering what Mitchell said he tries to avoid. The Balrog, in both cases, did a lot of killing, but it was nothing that mattered.
1: Yeah, and I, 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 that's good strategy. That's exactly how you. Pro, I think you should follow it. If you can get the Balrog to kill warriors, you've won because you're not getting your points back. You're not getting valuable. It can get tied up or slowed down pretty easily.
2: And I think, the mistake, I think the mistake that I've seen, and I've, I've fallen victim to it, because um, I, I think one of the first games I played as I was learning the game was against Mitchell, and I was using the Balrog, and then I can't remember where I played it again, and I wound up losing. It was in not in a tournament. It was just in a friendly game. But um, you try and just avoid the Balrog, and that's just – it doesn't work because you'll either not do what your army does well – Um, or you'll be completely off the objective. So you've got to engage the Balrog. Just decide what it kills, because it will kill something. Yeah. And then watch
1: the frustration as uh, the person playing the Balrog doesn't roll the six against three warriors and uh, loses the fight against three warriors and wastes a turn doing
2: nothing. Exactly. And, And I think that's the key, too, is when it is time to engage, and I'll talk about that that time where um, talk about the time where I did get the wound on it in the tournament, keep it tied up. And then when you're ready to commit, if you want to get a wound on it, have stuff in there that has the option to two hand, make sure you're throwing plenty of dice and be ready to take a few turns where it's going to roll the six. But I mean, what are the odds that with four dice that you're going to roll a six? We talked about this on the last episode. Yeah. I think somewhere around 68%. I'll check this, Mm -hmm. but Okay, so take four turns where it might be really bloody and gory. Sooner or later, it won't. Make sure you've got stuff that's two-handing, so when that occurs, you're ready to really put some hurt on it. Because when you trap that Balrog, you can eat up a lot of wounds quickly if you're two-handing on it. One, tactic, way, I... it's kind of nice to have Azog's rule on that. And do one
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh,
2: one tactic
1: I forgot to mention, too, is that I think the Balrog does probably the best of any monster well maybe not the best because it doesn't have fly but uh, it because it can hero combat every turn for free it allows you to set up some really nasty hurls with strength 9 so if you can get that one warrior hero combat to the edge and suddenly hurl with a strength 9 and line up a really really nice one can cause a lot of frustrations so that's also a really cool tactic
2: yeah, yeah. so
0: I-, I love what you guys are saying about Either trying to avoid the Bellrog from getting into the posi- in, into the position of being trapped or bogged down, and then Matt, your comment specifically about trying to force that to happen, talk a little bit about how you set that up. So if if I'm a Bellrog player, I've got to know like that's my that's my downfall. How do I avoid the situation where I'm going to sit there and chomp through an entire warband before just bailing and run into something more central? Is there anything that you do? Do you just wing it is it is there something consistent you can offer up to entice that or force that
2: so honestly i just wait for a chance because if you're running a balrog list i would say i'm doing everything i can to pick off the major support units like in mitchell's variant i'm doing everything i can to ensure that before i worry about anything the dwellers die and the bat swarm dies I don't even worry about the Balrog or the objectives till those things happen. Um, I'd keep the Balrog busy and tied up. And then after that's done, I never bait the Balrog because I just think that's a recipe for the Balrog to take the bait and still win. Uh, so <laughs> I,
0: I Great. You did exactly I, what I wanted to, and it still I'm worked caught, for you. <laughs> I caught the fish, and he's about to pull me in. I
2: I, I honestly wait, and if if the Balrog player plays flawlessly, you're probably not going to get the opportunity, but what I usually see happen is the people start to get antsy because they realize their 350-point monster is not doing what it needs to do, and they start getting a little too aggressive, so I try to ensure I'm in a spot that when I see them lose discipline and charge with the Balrog where they shouldn't have, that I'm in a spot to respond. So I'm at the mercy of their play, but almost always someone winds up getting antsy towards the mid to end game, especially if it's a time tournament. And they realize, wait a minute, I'm sitting on the objective with my Balrog, but there is 12 goblins around me, 14 hunter orcs, and Azog, so I am outnumbered on the objective, even though I'm sitting here basically asserting my will. I have to do something quickly in the next 30 minutes. Something bad happens. I think that's the other thing on whole on ground is if you build the list right, you might have the Balrog sitting on the objective, but you're not going to have the numbers.
0: Yeah, I love the idea of focusing down the model count or focusing down support or secondary targets before committing to the Balrog. I don't think I have anything else to add or any other color except for, I think this only happened, Mitchell, to you and I once, but... Um, as you can tell I've played Mitchell and his bell quite a few times not being if, if you get into the situation where you're trying to avoid that direct conflict I've had one of my bigger heroes or one of my most expensive models kept out of combat the entire game just because they you know they're between a rock and a hard place they either jump in and then give Mitchell the opportunity to do a larger combat or just focus co- focus effort on taking those those points. Um, alternatively, I've, I've kept them over on the edge, almost reverse kiting, not trying to avoid the bellrug but staying just out of the range to where I'm not going to be doing anything, not committing the model, maybe a, a move here and there just to burn the might so they're not wasting all resources, but don't be afraid to, don't be afraid to keep your big heroes out until yeah, maybe what Matt said, you find that opportunity where something just aligns and you have a chance to blitz, Something. Um but yeah, don't feel like don't don't have the reverse psychology of the antsy bug. Don't get antsy and then charge into the bell rug too soon.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty solid advice because if you think about it, uh even if your
0: big hero is kept out, as long as you're preventing the bell rug from
1: doing something, yeah, chances are your big hero is not more expensive than 350 points. So you're winning that battle.
2: Yeah. One other thing I'll too I'll say for countering, and you know, this is probably for newer players like myself, but If you're trying to tie the Balrog and you have a low courage army, a lot of people will try and charge the Balrog hoping for good courage rolls. I say absolutely avoid that position so that you're an inch away and make it so that when the Balrog charges, you're between him and where he wants to go, that when he wins the heroic combat, he doesn't get into more than two more models. So I Uh, use your control zone. Don't try to charge him if you're low courage. Just stop an inch away, block him. He'll have to go through you. And then when he does get the hero combat off, make sure you've got some more stuff in his way. So don't don't let the dice rolls dictate your movement strategy.
1: I like that strategy. If you're gonna do it though, make sure you don't have anything valuable within eight inches of it. because <laughs> if i if i uh, if you didn't charge the bell Rock, I'm absolutely not moving or I'm positioning to where I can do a lash onto something that is juicy rather than engaging those goblins straight in front of me or whatever those low point, low current.
2: Absolutely. You've always got to have an in the way, which surprisingly, I don't know why, but there's this big debate that the Balrog, I've had several people tell me the Balrog doesn't have to take in the ways with his fiery lash. And I absolutely disagree with that. I think it's treated just like any other missile weapon, but it's a, um, it's a throwing weapon. Yep. Yeah. So just, yeah, to your point, Mitch, you've got to make sure you're blocking. If there's a valuable target, he can lash. Yeah, because if you don't engage me, I'm not gonna
1: engage you. I'm gonna I'm gonna sidestep or something and start lashing what I want to
2: get to. Yeah, great point. Got to worry about that.
0: I feel like I'm being indirectly called out here. This Rivendell nightmare keeps coming up. because <laughs> 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 honestly, that's exactly what I did uh, in that game. That just everything went wrong. I had uh, I had some, a hero get lashed right away and killed, and then. Like two I think it was like the end of the second turn I was trying to set something up and I I basically tried to reform a shield wall instead of uh, direct engagement. And that's when I think it was Gilgalad was the last hero that just Mitchell turned around and lashed Gilgalad in. Uh. Uh. To your credit
1: though, Marcus, you've come back and you've whooped the Belrog the last time we played because you were running Floy. Completely disabled the Belrog. So yeah, there are fun. great tactics to, to uh to get past him.
0: Yeah. Okay, so just because I, I can't, I can't pass up a good rules debate. So Matt, you were saying people, you were hearing comments about the Belrog not having to take them in the way. I think would we all agree, or am I correct in assuming we all agree on the fact that line of sight is eyeballs to eyeballs? So if the Bellrog can see over one model that's right underneath them, there wouldn't be an in the way. But if there's a model standing in front of his target, there's still an in the way. Am I playing that similar to how you guys are playing?
2: I think so. Here's a good question, and I'll I'll do it more to be devil's advocate because, yes, I agree with you. But I would like to play more devil's advocate for the purpose of a good conversation. So line of sight is always drawn eyeballs to eyeballs in the ways is usually drawn from I would say the same thing on a model, but given the recent uh, clarification around ballistas, how line of sight is drawn from the people, ballistas have line of sight from the actual part where the missile is protruding out of it. Mm-hmm. Does, does a giant model like the Balrog, where his fiery lash is clearly not where his eyeballs are, do you do in the waves based on where the lash is located? I don't think so, but that'd be an interesting thing with such a giant model. This, this was actually
1: explained to me, because I was doing things with the Belrog, of uh, why a rog doesn't need in the ways a lot of the times to hit you, but you need in the ways to hit the Belrog, uh, and it is drawn from the eyeballs for the, for the line of sight, and if you're looking at the model you're targeting, if it is obstructed in any way by another model, though, uh... Then it counts as an in the way. So that's why a lot of times the Belrog can see over your lines if you get too close, and you can see the full model in the backfield just standing there. Uh, but if you're shooting back at the Belrog, drawing your line of sight, well, you see some goblins are actually covering up, you know, part of its feet and stuff like that, or your models in the way you know something like something is covering up the mo- the belrog in some way so therefore it's in the way back and that's that's the way it was described to me recently
0: yeah I like that i i thought yeah, we'd all be on the same page but i just had to make sure because i mean i've had my world sh- rocked a couple times in the last few months with the rule i always thought i was playing correctly and it turns out no i wasn't playing it correctly so i stop assuming and i start confirming now
1: yeah, that's I, I have to do the same thing. There's so many additions too. It kinda you get lost sometimes. I, I almost called an epic action the other day. <laughs> or the last time I played. I almost called an epic action. Which Matt doesn't know, that's from War of the Ring. I, I almost called know. Epic Epic Sacrifice.
0: <laughs> Wasn't War of the Ring the one where every strike automatically went to ten so Aragorn could get countered by a captain perfectly every time? Uh yeah. Uh
1: yeah. Uh, and that also happened in the Hobbit edition too, which is frustrating.
0: All right, well we digress. That was that was a cool conversation. What I, what would be fun to do, similar to like the the Rivendell list, is uh, Mitchell. Next time you play this army, uh, you'll have to put together just a couple notes from what happened, kind of what you were playing up against, and then uh, give us a quick quick rundown on what worked well. Um, or if all of your your tactics work perfectly and no modification needed.
1: Yeah, uh, I will absolutely do that. I think based on the times I've already played it, we kind of covered it, but uh, the times that it works is when you can sit back and lash, and the times that it doesn't work is when your Belrog is forced to do something he doesn't want to do.
0: Excellent. Thanks, guys. Let's go ahead and move on to our last last segment. All right, so this is our uh, post-mortem real world issues problems faced whatever you want to call it matt you have a specific example of something you encountered not recently but fairly recently if you take into consideration we haven't played a game in like months now um yeah walk us through walk walk us through your situation and what you were curious about
2: yeah so i I think what we're going to go with is here's a after action battle report clearly show that I didn't play it right because I lost horribly. And then, you know, get your guys' perspective on what you would have done, which I think will be interesting. But so here, here's, the, here's the venue. It's Nova 2019. And, uh, you know, I went to Nova and was doing pretty well. The final, the final round of Nova, I was on table eight, which, I mean, for me, that's really, really good. Wasn't expecting to be anywhere near that. And uh, I just ran into an absolute buzzsaw. So the dude I was playing couldn't have been cooler. I mean, really nice guy, uh, really fun to play against, but I was running Azog's Legion. So last year was was the year I, I did Azog's Legion. I did several different variants, but here's the makeup of my army to kind of show you what I had and then I'll talk about what my opponent had. Um, so Nova was 800 points last year. <clears throat> I ran Azog. Uh, with a war bat or a giant bat, two ogres, a banner, and filled out with Gundabad orcs. Uh, more shields than spears, but that was Azog. Uh, Yasnig on ward with lance. Had some hunter orcs. Had some fell wargs. Thimble uh, on ward. Similar war band to Yasnig. Hunter orcs. Fell wargs. It was really just a crazy good list until it ran into Angmar. So the final scenario was Lords of Battle. And I was playing against an Angmar list that had the Witch King on Fel Beast, Gulivar, A Barrelite. A Shaman on Felward. and a shade. Then after all that stuff, just imagine filled out with various wargs. But I mean, if you think about that, that is a crazy amount of magic in an 800 point list with a big terror of armor as well. So here's what I did. And I'll just, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. It was a 12, nothing loss for me. So I, I've been playing really well. I was feeling my oats. I ran into this. I knew that was the one army I didn't wanna play and then I just got curb stomped. I'm still missing teeth from that encounter. So, <laughs> so here's what happened is, you know, in deployment, my strategy, I thought, okay, I just need to break him and and survive Gullivar and the Witch King. If I can break him, he'll run away and I can, I can deal with this. So I was all about just making sure I killed orcs. So I deployed aggressively. And I didn't want to have Gullivar be able to snipe my back line, Heroic Combat, and be able to get into Azog or something when I, had, uh, when I wasn't prepared. So I had Azog protected up front, but his backside was protected so it wasn't going to get sniped from the back. What happened immediately is that um, as soon as we were ready to charge, I'd moved first. I was No, excuse me. He moved first on the first move, and it all fell apart here. With his Shaman, he cast a Wither on Azog. Oh, that's brutal. I used the White Wargs, and Wither is the spell that takes your strength away. Yeah. Which which normally I wouldn't worry about because Azog wounds on three heroes regardless, but I thought I really need to be able to kill warriors, so Azog's strength was important. So I used the Wargs point of will to resist. <laughs> Go ahead, Marcus
0: quick question specifically on that did azog have the mace or did you just run him base
2: yeah azog had everything but the mace okay okay thanks yeah. so he, he couldn't two hand when he's killing warriors um okay so i tried to resist I tried to resist with the one will then the barrel white no then uh the witch king cast, transfix. I did not resist because I was ready for the barrel light to try and paralyze, so I let Azal get transfixed. My entire line with the uh, Harbinger of Evil was basically down to Courage 1 and Courage 2. I did not get, I think I got one charge off. Golivar proceeded to kill my first Ogre. I'll skip short, because I think you guys know where this is coming. By the end of turn two, I was paralyzed. Half my army was dead. By the end of turn three, Azog was still paralyzed and killed by Golovar. And we didn't even make it the two hours before I was basically just taking courage tests and my army was running away. I wound up one model short of being table. So it couldn't have gone worse. I'm not sure if I described it adequately, but just... I. Out with no ability to resist from any of my heroes. The only bright spot is I had a couple honesty archers. Twice I wounded Gullivar, but each time he just went and munched on a warrior and regained his wounds. Um, so twelve nothing lost for me. Still a great Nova, but I mean I'm I'm dang near convinced that Azog's Legion can't be run in a tournament because I don't think there's an answer <laughs> for Angmar. I mean it's so good. <coughs> that is against so many lists, but if you run into a harbinger of evil, heavy magic casting list, I don't know what you do to answer it because it relies so much on Azam. If you saw that list, you, you're running my list, you're up against that list, how would you have approached setting up deployment? Really curious. How do you counter not being able to respond with magic? Uh, the, best, the best tactics, if you go up against
1: multiple spellcasters, it's really, really hard. Uh, the best thing i found is just to blitz one. Um, if you can blitz one and take out one and then blitz the second one, that's your goals. That's the best thing I've found because you can't avoid them. Um, but if you can take them out pretty quick with a nice little strategy or a little play or some sort of move, that really, really helps. Now they're in the backpedal. But yeah, no, that's really hard for that list. And to go up against that army, that's really tough. Especially when you got a flying monster like Golovar
2: running around, that's that's really tough. And him and the Witch King sat behind the line, waiting to just fly over and and get me after they'd done their will to me. It's nasty.
0: Yeah. So I have a a couple of clarifying questions to make sure I heard you right, Matt. So did you say the Witch King was on Felbeast? Beast? Yes. So the Witch King's on Felbeast. So you have two flying monsters. Did you say there was a shade in this list? There was a shade.
2: Ah, that's the... uh, And a a shaman. And I didn't really do color, but the few times I did get into combat, uh, having the ogres, sixes, go down to fives and lose to orcs. I mean, that was... I could go on and on about all the stuff that went wrong, but the shade was
1: huge. Um, so they did must not have had very many models then, right? Because if you're tied up in two flying monsters, a Shade, a Barrow-White, and a Shaman,
2: there's not a lot of room left with warriors. There was not a lot of warriors. That's why my immediate thought was if I can just break him. Yeah. But I feel
0: like run away. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly.
2: I, if, but I couldn't charge. It was so frustrating. If, yeah, if you could blitz that's your
1: only tactic you just got to push and you got to blitz get to that put that witch king really uncomfortable to where he doesn't know if he should charge or if he should back off and throw spells um and then yeah that that i would i would be going after the witch king as my primary
2: target keep in mm. mind the funny the funny side to this is mitchell marcus was with me at that tournament and he was playing as well and I said from turn two, when I start, or from, from round two, I was playing pretty good. I said, you know, as, as long as I don't have to play that Angmar list over there, I'll be just fine. And Marcus goes, Marcus goes, dude, don't worry about it. I would love your list against Angmar. If you play it, just do this, this, and this. And I was like, okay, okay. And then the very last game, I saw Angmar setting up and it was the very army I'd pointed out. And I was like, I can't remember what Marcus said. I can't remember what Marcus said. <laughs> i actually at one point i was looking for him because before the game started i was going to run over there and he'd use that time to take a bathroom break so i went into the game the whole time thinking i can't remember
0: (laughs) well obviously matt i was going to tell you to do the opposite of everything you did right (laughs) um so i i'm with mitchell basically on the fact you have to be aggressive so Tell me what you guys think of this. If I was in, in your shoes, Matt, I like the fact you you deploy aggressively um, because it at least gives you potentially the, the ability to pick and choose where your battles are gonna be fought. And especially on a map where there's choke points. I don't know if your map was pretty wide open or if there were a lot of natural choke points built in. I didn't hear that part.
2: I'll post a picture to Instagram, but it was uh, supposed to be like
0: an Arnor foresty
2: type board. So there was lots of buildings. Lots of trees, uh, Marcus. You'll remember you you saw me play that game on the board. It was table eight, but I played on it twice. Uh, I lost. That was the game I lost at two against Arnor Rivendell combination, and then I lost the very last. Oh game. So yes,
0: yes. I only I had that.
2: two. I only had two losses in Nova, and they were both on that table. So I hate table eight, by the way. But
0: yeah, it was very cluttered. <laughs> it was a very cluttered board. Okay. Well, then I like your I like your idea of being aggressive even more so because then you're at least taking away the opportunity for those flying monsters to uh, uh, hide easier.
1: Also, uh, for that shade to maximize his uh, exactly. power. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, in terms of targeting, your your focus on trying to break the army. I like that. I'm gonna not talk about the failed curse chest for right now, but the magic uh magic resistance plan so you have three spellcasters that are going to be launching spells at you for at least three turns and i guess i'm i'm calculating that saying the barrel white is most likely going to have three paralyzes unless he's trying to blitz so maybe it's two paralyzes so two turns where you have to be watching out for that which king is going to throw a spell at you every single turn um and then the shaman is going to be messing with you to some degree or other do we have specters no. Okay, so Spectres aren't a thing. Um, so but let's say you have to survive three turns. And I think if you can survive two turns, um, you, maybe the strategy works. So when you were rolling your resist dice, Matt, you said you were rolling one at a time? Yeah, I only rolled one at a time on
2: the, the Wither spell, but then I used all of my will to try and resist the
0: Paralyze. Got it. So with Azog specifically, this might be controversial, but I think I would still only I think I would I would tank every spell like you did, except for the paralyze, and I would still roll one die for paralyze. And I'm basically saying that the three might I have on my white ward, I'm going to invest that to resist. So I need to I need to make sure that I'm not gonna roll lower than a two, right? And even if I do, I still I still burn everything so long as Azog has one point of my left, one point for a heroic move um, the next turn. So focus on killing the Warriors, except Azog is going to make a beeline for the Shade because I think the Shade is what keeps that army together. And if the Shade is having to um, play super defensive or if you start to crack the bubble around the Shade, then that's going to force all of his heroes to come to you. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. Um, but the shade left alone will burn all of your heroes' might and make your warriors obsolete. So I would I would do everything, and when I say everything, I would have two heroes. I would have Azog making a bullet for the shade. I would have one of your other mounted heroes in his hip pocket, and it would be heroic combats, uh, mining up to kill, uh, and then burning all might if necessary to get through that first wave of troops to uh pressure the shade.
1: Yeah, actually now, I I agree with that. I'm sorry, I forgot about the shade. Yeah, that's I agree with Marcus on that tactic
0: 100%. And and the other thing you have in your hip pocket too that's going to make I play Angmar a ton and the thing that would make me super scared is Azog has fight 7 and he's got master of battle. So Gulivar isn't going to um be able to just charge in. The Witch King's not going to be able to just charge in and strike. You're going to have to successfully get a spell casted. Ah, uh, channeled spell, right? Well, no, I guess because Wistram could strike and then charge you. But th- I mean, that's going to be hard, right? Just because of the clutter of battle, it's not going to be super easy to get a flying monster directly into Azog, especially if he gets dehorsed. And that was the second thing I was going to say. As soon as you can crack through that battle line and pressure pressure the um, shade, I would dismount the White Ward from Azog to get Azog on a smaller base make it easier to hide him and then also it gives you another hero with long range um to go warrior chomping outside the shade bubble so basically the whitewired would fly right in drop azog off then jump outside of the shade bubble and start trying to munch on anything that's uh in range and even he if could he help, dies, or he could help you trap the shade yeah run him around there's there's a bunch of things yeah. you could do with them but i mean that's weird right Get basically burn his mind as fast as possible then get him off get him off and doing his own thing um, that makes sense. because actually I, this I, is
1: oh sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i will say that uh, many times especially like uh once you do a dismount it automatically makes your opponent just think twice it I, I don't know what it is psychologically but it makes them think you have some sort of play that they're not seeing and it really freaks them
0: out right and fact check me on this guys but if azog gets paralyzed on white ward I think that would make both models paralyzed. So the faster you can get the white ward out from under Azog, the uh, the fewer turns you're going to be exposed to having a, a paralyzed go off for just massive value.
2: I don't think the white ward gets paralyzed because I think you have to target Azog. This actually came up and uh, Devin, the TO, came and helped us because we were trying to decide where the bases went. But whether we played it right or not, the white warg was not paralyzed. He was, oh, however, okay. you had to make way that my opponent was super smart the way he when he paralyzed me because the way you have to make way and put Azog next to the warg's base, the warg was basically trapped by warriors who couldn't move because they were frozen in terror because they couldn't pass a courage test to charge. And he had all of his orcs surrounded one inch away
1: uh so i'm i'm reading the paralyzed rule right now and it says this power targets one enemy model within range and it does not say you have to specify the rider of the mount
0: i feel like azog is a unique case right because he's one of the only models that has the mount guaranteed to stay and yeah. if nova to is ruling that the white wark doesn't get paralyzed i would say that's White Walk doesn't get paralyzed
2: well, and I, you know, it's kind of hard to remember, but it was. I could be wrong. You guys can tell me, but the, the war's a hero um, automatically passes. So if you're targeting Azog, I don't know. You guys, if you don't agree, it sounds like I might be off on an island. Well, we I might mess
0: it up. Well, in my opinion, would be yeah. It it would get both of them, but again, if the if the Nova To is making that ruling, I feel like that's kind of the law of the land for the u.s because i mean obviously those people have seen games a thousand times over and if they have a universal house rule whatever it may be um, yeah and i
2: i don't want to misquote i'm trying to remember i think he was more ruling on where the bases went i'm Uh, not sure he specifically said whether the war got paralyzed so i don't i don't want to throw shade on him if that's wrong so i i think I think now that I'm really pondering it, he spent more time thinking about where do we put our bases once we separate?
0: Well, that was obviously a big part of that um, move, especially if he was trying to line up some traps. So really quick, one other thing I wanted to say on this on this strategy. I don't know what you guys are thinking about this so far, but the the second piece of what I would do um, so obviously, I said Azog is going to have a, a, another supporting hero in his hip pocket for heroic moves or any type of might that he can spend to keep Azog barreling forward. When my battle line gets going, so obviously ogres would be on the side because if they fail, at least they're on the side and they're not plugging up the middle. I would not charge. I would not charge my models across the board. Uh, I would keep them maybe if you have your left flank right flank i would commit one flank and then play passive with the other one saying that i'd rather avoid the the risk of having models paralyzed or piecemeal charges uh, and then just full focus the other effort because i again playing against Angmar angmar quite a few times the terrifying uh, spirit heroes that sit around the models obviously it sounds like he had at least four Supporting his front lines, giving them the terrifying special rule, um, pick your battles, and then hope hope you get some concentrated roles. And then I think Matt, you've you've said this multiple times offline. Building a building a list with some sort of counter to harbinger evil like a warhorn, um, it's something that you really value now going forward. I think that would have changed this outcome quite a lot, because if if you could have gotten some of your rules early on and then got the model count swinging dramatically in your favor, I think this looks completely different.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point, because had I not gotten completely bogged down that first turn, this all goes a lot better. So yeah, this, this list build, if I ever do it competitively again, Hunter Orcs can take a Warhorn. It will be on there.
0: So, I mean, give me some feedback. What do you guys think about focusing on the Shade? Matt, you actually played the battle. Do you think that would have worked? Assuming that you could, let's let's even out your rules. Let's say you make one out of three charges instead of zero out of six. Um, do you think that's viable? Do you think that gets shut down, Mitchell? I'll go first. I honestly think
2: it would because I was playing, trying to think about how do I last four turns of magic And it's not about that. It's about making sure you last one really, really effective turn of heroic combats with all your heroes. Mm. So throw every will into the resist, get into the back line if I'm following you right. Burn a bunch of might on heroic combats to disrupt his formation. I actually, yeah, I certainly couldn't be worse than what I did. And had I broken through and then... Had he then been burning transfixes and moving versus being able to just bog me down, there's a really good chance that I can kill enough of his base orcs to at least make him worried about being broken.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I like your tactic of pushing towards the shade. That would be my goal, but only if the opportunity presents itself. It's kind of like a game-time decision. You have to look at the scenery, look at how he's deployed— probably is what his tactics is um i would agree with matt that you have one really good turn to set up a play i would say put everything you have into that play and then hope for the best that you can keep it going um the other thing i do when i go up against a Barrow white which works pretty well is i bring along with my hero so like with azog if you just run a bunch of orcs like in base contact with him Number one, it protects against that flying monster, like a golivar swinging around. But the other thing, too, if he does drop to a Paralyze, you have three, four dice to get him up at the end of that turn, rather than just a one. And then he just stands up at the end of that turn. Really, really helpful as well. Kind of counters that Paralyze a little bit more. So you're not as scared of the
2: paralyzed.
0: Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's a good call, because maybe not super applicable, Matt, to this scenario here, but that's just a general comment, too. Don't be afraid to eat the first Paralyze, because a lot of times that first Paralyze, your opponent is going to be trying to line up uh, epic play, combat, transfix to to assassinate your hero. But if you can counter to a point where, you're, especially on Azog, where the, hero's gonna, the hero underneath them is going to keep living and doing things... Don't be afraid to eat that first Paralyze. Have him burn a significant portion of his will trying to get it to go off and then have a bunch of dice to counter and then you are start a turn two, almost the same position, but he's got fewer resources.
1: Yeah, I could see that being really frustrating for an Angmar player because they're usually trying to burn your will before the paralyzed goes off. So let's say he throws his Shaman Weather on you. Okay, I'll eat that. Then he says, okay, I'll throw a Transfix from the Witch King. And you're like, okay, I'll eat that. That's fine. He goes... Okay, I'll try to drop the paralyzed because I got to get this play off. And you're like, okay, I'll eat the paralyzed. That's fine. And then you get up at the end of that turn, and now he's down that much resources, and you're still at full.
0: (laughs) And Azog's got six might to help him on that roll. So even if you get the five, even if you roll just horribly, you can burn a couple points and then be right back in the game. Exactly.
1: And then you're at full resources where he's down a bunch of will trying to set up that play that didn't work.
0: All that being said. All that being said, I still would do exactly what you did, Matt. Not try to eat the Paralyzed, because my mission is I'm trying to Kamikaze Missile at this Shade. I don't want to waste a turn. Yeah. So I still I still would have done exactly what you did in, in terms of rolling a single dice to resist the Paralyzed, because that's movement and a charge bonus. Um, and even the Transfix, because I want to get in there as fast as possible. But only with a single dice, using Burning Might to help the roll.
1: I'd probably try to do a hybrid somewhere in there where I'm trying to blitz you, but I'm also protecting myself against if all goes to hell with uh, with a Paralyzed or a monster with a Golivar charging in. So I'd probably do like a hybrid, something like that. I like the dismounting thing because that way you're not affecting the Warg much. But yeah, I would try to do one. The first turn, try to get your blitz off. And then after that, you're protecting against the magic a little bit.
0: I like it. So now well, next time if, I, if list, I, can I can ever get a chance,
2: if I can ever get a chance to, now with this new knowledge, playing <laughs> <laughs> You're oh, gonna well, now 12, well, Never mind, I'm still taking my Corsairs and shooting Gulliver with a crossbow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was going to say, you'll probably not see a shade
2: in a tournament anymore. Well, no, the the funny thing is, and I mean, this will be a rabbit trail, but you can kind of laugh. I was on Facebook talking to this other dude, but one of the next tournaments I played, take a Mordor list with a shaman so that that I can (laughs) be fearless. And then the rich being staffed as well, and I spent the whole game with Courage (laughs) One Works. Can't call it a (laughs) break. (laughs) <laughs> no, you got you got to lose them to learn. Honestly, though, that's so interesting because, like, me being a fairly newer player, you don't see as much magic. So it's a lot of just movement tactics, figuring out when to do the strikes, the real combats. Once you start going to the tournaments and you see these well-put-together magic lists, it just adds such a big variant to the game. Um, it's a lot of fun
1: really fun really scary uh i last tournament i was in probably the most stressed out i've ever been because i went up against a gladriel with a
0: guai here very very scary <laughs> well guys this has been awesome we're getting close to that two hour mark so we should probably start winding down um super interesting conversations really excited to be able to revisit some of these topics in the future when matt gets his chance to to uh challenge this engmar list <laughs> you can tell us whether or not it was total crap or if it actually maybe worked a little bit <laughs> yeah. the over the bar is set low that's all i gotta say we gotta keep you alive four turns instead of three and then i call it a success <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thanks guys all right. All right. Peace.